Hi there, Duncan Green here um, with the weekly roundup of blogs on From Poverty to Power. And I have to say, I'm having a terrible morning. This is the fourth attempt to record this damn thing. Um, uh, the last attempt, I didn't even turn the damn recorder on. Um, it's a grey, wet, horrible morning in London. Um, the the Scots are the best for this. They have about 50 words for horrible weather. And this is drich which the dictionary definition is bleak and dreary, both great words. So um, I'm on a dreech morning having a terrible time. Fingers crossed we can get this thing done. So I'm going to talk you through the week's posts on From Poverty to Power. And we started off with um, a slightly new feature. We've, we noted, we, we've noticed that different posts get quite radically different amounts of traffic. And we thought we would start doing a kind of greatest hits, a rolling greatest hits thing where we talk. Uh, and so on Monday, we put together the five most read posts from October and November from the last two months. Um, the most read post by a long way was about randomized control trials. And that's because the day after the Nobel Prize was awarded to Esther Duflo, Abhijit Banerjee and Michael Kramer, who are the founders of this movement of using randomized control trials in aid and development, importing them from other sciences like medicine. Um, uh, I put up a, a, a sort of a sort of summary or a collection of the critiques that have been on my blog over the years about RCTs from some very big names and sort of reviews of papers and all the rest of it, because I'm an RCT skeptic, I have to confess, um, at least in terms of there being a massive degree of overselling. Um, and that got a lot of traffic, a lot of discussion in the comments. Um, people, yeah, I think economists generally felt it was great that the Nobel Prize went to some development economists. Non-economists were rather alarmed that this would even turbocharge what's already a very dominant approach to what constitutes evidence and that the, the award of the Nobel would just mean that from now on there's only one gold standard and you have to RCT everything. And a lot of the articles which I link to or uh, on the blog are saying, well, RCTs work for some things and not for others. And it's just one tool in the toolkit and we mustn't overinflate their importance. So that got a lot of comments and a lot of read readers. Second up was a, a post by Farida Benner um, called Who is an Expert? Uh, Farida works for the IRC uh, and she was writing about essentially the dominant who decides what is an expert what is expertise what is knowledge and just talking about the sort of need for decolonization in the aid and uh, aid sector because at the moment that definition and the whole approach to expertise is heavily northern dominated and that clearly uh, uh, got an echo because lots and lots of people read it tweeted it commented on it third was a more traditional from poverty to power rant so every now and then I go to uh, academic conferences and I'm usually, I have to say, pretty alarmed and appalled by the incredibly low standard of presentations at academic conferences. People uh, overrun and then run out, run out of time just as they get to the interesting bit, PowerPoints with 100 words per slide, um, chairs who seem to be in a coma and, and don't make any attempt to, to, to make the panel or, the, or the, 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 the keynote work, and on and on it goes. I tried to be a bit more uh, helpful rather than just moaning um, and came up with seven steps to improve conference presentations, which I think got quite a lot of interest from, from academics uh, in particular because um, they need help, I think it's fair to say. 
Fourth uh, post of the week was uh, an interview with Branko Milanovic, who is the inequality guru. He has a new book out called Capitalism Alone. So I sort of interviewed him about the book and reviewed it the next day. But actually, I wanted to talk more widely with him. And we discussed uh, his life, his role. When I first came across him about 15 years ago, he was this nerd in the bowels of the World Bank who was doing who's doing the number crunching on inequality when no one else really cared about it. And he's gone from there to being a sort of global superstar because inequality has become, not least because of Branko's efforts, one of the big hot topics in public debate. So I just wanted to get a feel from him about what it's been like this last 15 years. And that was really interesting. His latest incarnation, I think, is even even better, which is he's gone from being a number cruncher to actually being a really acute political philosopher. And I think that's an enorm- That's a really fascinating sort of. Uh, and I think he always was, but he had to hide himself as a number cruncher for the for various reasons. And he's now sort of flowering. Uh, and and I think it's a fascinating conversation. Um, lastly, the uh, Pierre Bassimi uh, Ngalishi Kanyageri and Pierre, apologies if I've just massacred your name. Uh, it's my bad. But he wrote a piece on the NGOization of research. And I think a fairer description would actually be the aidization of research, because what Pierre's writing about is how how much research in countries like the, the, the Congo, the DRC, is dominated by the aid sector and the distortions that introduces into the way research is carried out, both in terms of what is researched and, and how it's researched. And again, I think he, he struck a nerve with a lot of people uh, calling out that that. Uh, a domin- a, the aid sector's dominance of research. So those are the five top posts for October and November. And the thing I like about them is, firstly, the, the variety that they've. Two of the posts are from Power Shifts, our new project being run by Maria Faciolince, which is trying to open up space for views and voices from the global south, not just have northern experts like me, I suppose, uh, writing, but to to use the platform for something much more uh, interesting and progressive. Um, it was great that a podcast got on there because I'm loving podcasts and doing them and interviewing people and so on. And it's good that that actually broke through. Um, and so I, I was just very happy with the spread uh, of what people want to read. Um, I should say that we are currently running a reader survey. So if you're a reader or a listener, please come onto the blog. Tell us what you want more of, what you want less of. We're at a particular moment of shaping what um, how the blog evolves and develops because there's no point in just doing the same thing over and over again. And so this is a particularly good time if you're an influencer to influence how we how we do things. Second post was um, Naomi Hussein, who's moved from the Institute of Development Studies to the Accountability Research Center in Washington. And Naomi recently attended the World Bank's big annual meeting on social accountability. They have this thing called the GPSA, the Global Partnership for Social Accountability. And their three-day gabfest this year was on the challenge of inclusion. So Naomi was sitting there in these meetings in these beautiful, in the beautiful uh, World Bank offices in Washington discussing report cards and scorecards and community accountability mechanisms and multi-stakeholder thises and thats. And just it was all terribly polite, terribly toolkitty um, and systematized. And on her timeline, when she looked at her phone, the world was burning down. There were riots and protests in Iraq and Iran and Chile and Bolivia and Colombia. And she just felt this huge cognitive dissonance between social accountability as being discussed at the World Bank 
and what was going on on the streets, which was a much more unruly, violent form of protest-driven accountability. And so she reflects on this, and she's got a couple of lovely quotes. Um, I never felt more like I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, that more important conversations about accountability were happening elsewhere. And then her conclusion, while I sat in the World Bank wondering what it would take for the sounds of real demands for real accountability to penetrate its thick glass walls. Lovely writing, very powerful, just a just a, a, an emotional reflection on, on what she went through when she was sitting in this meeting at the World Bank. Wednesday, we put up the reader's survey, which I've already talked about, so please come and do that. Then the next one was a book review. Great Policy Successes by Mallory E. Compton and Paul Tahart. And the thing which got me was the subtitle. So the full title of this book is massive. It is Great Policy Policy Successes or a tale about why it's amazing that governments get so little credit for their many everyday and extraordinary achievements, as told by sympathetic observers who seek to create space for a less relentlessly negative view of our pivotal public institutions. Wow, that sounds like somebody getting something off their chest big time. A great subtitle. Um, And so I was completely, yeah, I loved the book before I even opened it. So what the the Great Policy Successes does, oh, and the book's open access as well, which obviously, you know, is fantastic. Um, what the what the book does is take fifteen case studies, only one of them from from developing country from Brazil, Bolsa Familia, um, and and just summarize each of the case studies, a, a big serious policy success, and then see if there's any common patterns. And I'm afraid there is no secret source, there is no uniform pattern. Well, the actually the interesting thing is just the variety. So when on a bunch of different sort of factors and axes, they find a huge range. So. They find that there are moments of energy behind a lot of these positive success, uh, uh, successes, but these policy successes. But the energy can be positive. It can be, you know, we've just come out of a period of, of dictatorship and we're, we're keen to change the country. We're going to do great things. Or it can be negative. It can be driven by fear of unrest or of uh, external threat. So uh, it can be a positive or negative moment of energy. Um, some of these policy successes are actually driven by foresight by very wise people in government or academia saying we need to take action now to prevent something happening really bad in the future. So I guess that has some cause for optimism for, from, from the whole climate change question. Others are driven by reaction. Something terrible has happened. A crisis has happened. We need to react. We need to change stuff. Some of these policy successes are actually top down. They're driven by enlightened governments, enlightened leaders. Others are bottom-up, driven from the street. Some of them take a very long time, 50 years in the case of climate change uh, adaptation in in the Netherlands and and some other examples. Others are a quick fix. Others actually take advantage of a window and shift things around very quickly. Some leaders choose to politicise the issue to to get the momentum behind uh, a big policy change. Um, Others actually depoliticise it to take it off the political uh, out of the political um, boxing ring and make it something which everyone can agree on. Some of these processes include uh, vast numbers of stakeholders and it's an inclusive uh, coming together process. Others actually exclude and, and make decisions behind closed doors to get stuff done. So I'm afraid if you're looking for easy answers, bad luck. I mean, the conclusion is a classic academic, it all depends. But I think underneath that, it all depends. There's some really interesting content. 
Final post of the week, an old friend of mine, Nicholas Koloff, who is, uh, was an Oxfam, he's now Exfam, as we call it, and runs something called the Argidius Foundation, or the Argidius Foundation, not sure which, which is um, a big private family philanthropy foundation. Uh, it's funded by a big uh, Catholic family, The I think it's the Brennick Myers, who own the CNA uh, department store um, and various other things. And what, what Argidius does is it has a very particular niche. It funds intermediaries in, around the world who in turn support business development by small and medium enterprises. So it's very niche. It's very market-based. And what Argidius did in the last five years was do an experiment on what works to boost SMEs. And they asked two simple questions. We're going to fund all these processes and research them very um, systematically to find out are there common patterns in high-performing interventions by these intermediaries who get much better results in terms of SME development? And can these uh, intermediaries use this to design better interventions? And you'll be pleased to hear that the answer to both of these is yes. Uh, Nicholas uh, identifies five core characteristics of these kind of interventions. Uh, One is selecting right, and that works both ways. The intermediary has to select the right companies to support, and the companies have to select the right intermediary. Uh, so there's got to be a fit. And they had sort of, you know, processes of having first dates between the intermediary and the company to make sure that you can actually work together. And that's sort of sort of um, testing each other out, seeing if it's the right, if, if the chemistry works. Second, it pays to pay that a lot of the intermediaries have found if they charge companies for their business development advice, Companies take it more seriously. Companies, uh, you get a better select. You get the companies who really mean it. So you get a better automatic selection, and you get better results. Um, solving common problems together. So rather than saying we've got all this great academic research, we're going to come in and implement it. You actually start with the problem, a bit like PDIA, problem-driven iterative adaptation, which is more about government and institutional reform but the same approach you start with the problem you solve the problems together and you derive the learning from that not vice versa and in terms of learning the people doing the 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 intermediaries and Argidius itself need to have their own learning loops this is not just you know you can't start with the assumption we have all the answers and we're just helping these guys learn you have to be prepared to change your program and your way of working as well Um, And finally, uh, in the same vein, practice what you preach. If you're going to go on about good governance and accountability or inclusion or all the rest of it, you have to demonstrate that as well. It's no good just saying, do what we say, not what we do. And that brings an end to this um, podcast and this summary of the week's posts. And I truly, truly hope that this time it's recorded okay. Have a good weekend and talk to you next week.